Okay, so topic of today, uh, today's discussion, I think it's, it looks like it's a very uh, compelling one, uh, is why Jews don't believe in, in Jesus. Now, for the, just a quick disclaimer, um, regarding the pronunciation of, of, of J.C.'s name, there's a little bit of a debate in Jewish law, because as we'll see today, as we'll see today, that there is a um, verse in the Torah, the verse says clearly, you're not allowed to mention the name of any other God. So <clears throat> there's a discussion as to the mention of the name uh, of Jesus, because uh, that's just his name, you know. That was a very common name. It's like the, it was the, uh, um, uh, the name for, for Yehoshua, uh, which was his name. Uh, the term Christ, on the other hand, uh, may have some connotations of divinity or of a deity, and therefore it's something that traditionally Jews have refrained from saying. Uh, that's why traditionally they call him J.C., uh, Yashka, other names that they give him, Yeshua Natsri, the Nazarene, uh, but saying uh, uh, the whole name is somewhat uh, refrained, uh, something we refrain from saying. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> So what we're going to try to do today is kind of talk about uh, the emergence of, I apologize, uh, for, of Christianity as a major world religion. It kind of jives really nicely with what we were discussing previously, uh, the history and that time, the first century. Um, kind of, you know, where it comes in, uh, how it emerges, what's its relationship with Judaism. And I think it's important for us to understand kind of the roots of, of, of this uh, religion, especially because when we want to understand Jewish history and Jewish and Christian interactions over the, cost, the course of the past 2,000 years, it's very important to understand how they're related and how they kind of uh, started off, uh, um, well, not, they didn't start off, but how Christianity started off as a sect of Judaism and eventually branched off and became its own, its own religion, uh, eventually becoming the dominant religion uh, that, we, uh, that we see today. Um, but also, so we're talking about the history of it, but also we're obviously going to talk about why Jews have rejected it uh, from time immemorial, and even, even, you know, even at the times, especially at the times of, of the formation of the religion, uh, the Jews weren't into, uh, you know, into J.C., they weren't, they weren't super involved. You know, he didn't really have such a big following in his lifetime. Christianity explodes in popularity when it comes under the leadership of Paul. So... Jesus is dead. He's not much of a big deal. He has a few disciples. Uh, he has his brother James. He has Peter, uh, the fisherman from the north. These are trying, they're trying to promote his religion. They make some sort of inroads into the Jewish community, but um, it's, not, it's not a very impactful. It's actually not impactful at all. In fact, um, compared to, let's say, uh, other what we would call uh, exotic variants of Judaism, such as the Sadducees or the Essenes or uh, any one of those other groups were much, much bigger at the time. So uh, there's a major shift that's going to happen when Paul takes the leadership and he goes on this massive PR campaign of taking uh, this Judeo-Christian sect and Kind of uh, uh, divesting itself of any of any of any Jewish uh, um, kind of uh, way of practices or or f- or philosophy, uh, opening it to the non-Jews, and it's going to explode in popularity. So we're trying to figure out like what was the backdrop for this, uh, the development of the religion. Um, uh, what do we know about about JC himself, and why have Jews historically rejected it and still do that to this day? Paul was Jewish. In fact, Paul was named Saul, Paul of Tarsus. He was a 
Uh, the story of him is that he was someone who was um, going against, kind of preaching against the Judeo-Christians. Uh, and he kind of has this massive uh, uh, turnaround, so to speak, to Damascus, on his road to Damascus, exactly. Were Jewish and Roman? Didn't he respond? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Something like that. Yeah, but he, he started off as clearly someone who was in the Jewish camp, who was crusading against the Judeo-Christians. He has this massive revelation. Exactly, that's, that was the plain words, yeah. Now, it's very important that we look at the foundation of the religion. It's clearly Paul is the founder of the religion. What year did he... We're talking about the year 50, 60 of the so Common Era. 50 years after. Yeah, it's not so clear. The dates aren't, aren't so clear. We don't know the exact dates. Now, um, first thing I want to talk about is the historical Jesus. This is a topic of huge debate till this day. This is from the January 2015 edition of, mm-hmm. of Biblical Archaeology Review. Um, I, get, I, get, I am a subscriber. Uh, and the big question is, did Jesus exist? Oh, like this, we're finally going to answer that question. It's a, it's a topic that there's been so many books written about it, so much discussion. And the reason why it's such a debate, it's not so clear, is because um, we don't have any historical contemporary documentation or evidence of him actually existing. There isn't, there isn't any. Um, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, were, those are the first uh, of the Christian books. They were written at the earliest estimates 30 years after uh, uh, Jesus is dead. Did Josephus say something about... Josephus, oh yes. So, so uh, some of the contemporary, uh, the contemporary accounts that we have uh, of, of, of J.C. comes from Josephus. And then remember, Josephus... As we talked about last time, he was the defender of the Galilee during the uh, Great Revolt. He started writing his books in the year 73. So even Josephus is not exactly historical, because we're talking about uh, you know, 30 to 40 years after, after, uh, after J.C.'s death. Now, that being said, that is the major, the major, major sources that we have uh, today from, uh, that we would call contemporary are from Josephus. That being said, uh, there is huge debate as to the authenticity of, of those accounts. There's two accounts, one really small one and one a somewhat of a larger one. Even the large one is only like a, maybe a paragraph that talks about J.C. Every, every Josephus scholar agrees that it was tampered with. Um, there's obviously a problem. If you're a if you're, if you're Christian and the major uh, history or historian of the time period of Jesus himself has no accounting of this wonderful guy who walked on water and resuscitated the dead and he was so impactful and such a, you know, uh, such an influence and there is no accounting of it. Um, so everyone agrees that it was edited in. The question is, was it entirely tampered with? Was it entirely edited in? Was it just modified? That's where the debate is. Just like, that's what they discuss in this article. They bring the two uh, sections from Josephus that mention JC, and they try to prove, is it in, you know, does the context fit? Is the vocabulary and the pronunciation and kind of the way it's written, is that, does that, uh, you know, is that, uh, is that similar to the rest of Josephus' writing? That's the discussion. Um, we don't, I, I think the debate will rage on forever because there isn't any, uh, any um, kind of firm evidence that's going to, you know, seal any, any debate. Um, in Jewish sources, we have actually a few mentions of, of a fellow by the name of Yeshu Hanotsri. Yeshu is, would be his Hebrew name, Jesus. Hanotsri from Nazarene. Uh, 
problem with the Jewish sources is also they're not historical. You know, the Talmud was actually written about the year 500. So it's clearly not historical. But additionally, we have um, two separate individuals, one of them as a student of Rabbi Yeshua ben Prachia, who existed uh, 200 years before the Common Era, and another, so there's one Yeshua Hanatsri who, who's, uh, who's presented as a student of him, which is obviously not uh, necessarily in sync with the Jesus that, that, we, that you know, the Old Testament talks about, kind of the beginning of, of, uh, of the millennium. But the millennium, 4 BC, this is the, 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 the scholars uh, really spend a lot of time, a lot of ink is spilled on the whole discussion. Is, was, it, was it the year the year 1 or the year 4 before the Common Era? Uh, either way, so that's, that's one source that we have in, in the Jewish writings. We have an additional source in the Jewish writings of another fellow, Yeshua Natsri. Uh, the time, time period is not necessarily given, uh, but it has been interpreted by some as this being their guy, and did we execute him? Did we not execute him? In one portion of the Talmud, it does say that uh, they did execute a fellow by the name of Yeshua Natsri. They executed him and his five disciples on uh, the eve of Passover. So yes, um, it's not clear from Jewish sources. It's not clear from any secular sources. I think for the context of our discussion, we're going to assume that he did exist. Uh, he's not a composite character. Uh, this is one guy, and the story is pretty much accurate, you know, born sometime around the beginning of the millennium, uh, executed sometime in the 30s. Now, as to whether or not the Jews executed him, um, if you remember, we talked about last week, the Sanhedrin, they seized operations in the year 30. Remember, they picked up their bags and they left. The Talmud says that it's clear the Sanhedrin was not an operation from the year 30. Now, Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme, Law, Supreme Court, if the Jewish Supreme Court is not an operation, Jewish courts everywhere do not... Uh, meet out capital punishment. So um, the problem with saying that the Jewish people or the Jewish courts did execute him would be that would be the fact that we know at, from the point of time of the year 30, 30 four, I'm sorry, 40 years before the destruction of the Second Temple, we know that the Jewish people, did, the Jewish courts didn't do any capital punishment. Uh, they stopped. The Sanhedrin left, and they and they um, and if the Sanhedrin is not in the temple, they don't do. They don't. Uh, no court anywhere gives out capital punishment. Um, there's a response to that uh, because there is a very interesting source that I found in the Tosfos. Tosfos is the com- is the medi- medieval commentaries. Apologize, the medieval commentaries on the Talmud. Uh, they deal with the problem um, in the Talmudic text itself, which does indicate that Rabbi, Ye- Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, if you remember we spoke about last week, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was the rabbi, the leader of Jerusalem, who was smuggled out. They, put, they tried to put the knife through his coffin, and he met Vespasian. Remember that guy? So uh, it does talk about him um, being involved in a capital punishment case uh, in those 40-year period. In the 40-year period, period between the year 30 and the year 70. So the Talmud has to grapple with, uh, or the, the Tosfos has to answer the problem, hey, if the Sanhedrin left Jerusalem, they weren't practicing capital punishment anywhere, how did Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, how did he ever uh, deal with capital punishment at that time? So the Tosfos gives an answer, and it says that even though the Sanhedrin left Jerusalem, even though the Sanhedrin left Jerusalem, uh, still, periodically, when there was a great need to... Um, 
to mete out capital punishment, they would reconvene in Jerusalem and they would and they would and they would judge someone uh, uh, as uh, as as they saw fit. Did they use crucifixion as capital punishment? Uh, no, that's a, that's another uh, that's another important point. Um, so the, so this opens the door, and then and then the Tosas reference as in that episode. It doesn't say which episode. It does open the door uh, for um, for analysis that maybe indeed, if the Jews did do it, well, they would have they would have reconvened in Jerusalem as they periodically did, even though uh, regular court wasn't in session from the year thirty. Now, as to Bernie's question with regards to crucifixion. Um, Crucifixion was never a method of execution in the Jewish courts. They had four methods of execution. None of them involved crucifixion. Um, if the Jews did kill him, they didn't crucify him. Um, clearly, if he was crucified, that was the Romans. Um, th- that was the Romans. Um, that being said, I- I'm just trying to be I'm trying to be honest here. I know typically the Jew, you know, the Jewish response is always, "No, we didn't kill him." Right? I know that's you know the Romans killed him. That's the typical Jewish line. I'm trying to be a little bit more honest here. What I th- really think, I mean, you know, I think it's possible the Jews that did execute him, and there's a certain process done to uh, after someone would be stoned, which is the method of execution that they would have used. They may have placed them in a position that could be confused as crucifixion. Could they have tried him and then just turned him over to the Romans for the Romans to... to I mean, the, the yes, so what's important to note is that even if the Jews did execute him, Israel was at that time under Roman law. So the Romans for sure had to be complicit, if not actively involved, in, 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 uh, in trying and executing him. Were there, any, uh, were there any writings from... Roman side about Jesus. Uh, I don't know. I don't. We have we have some references in in, in some other um, Roman. Um, there is some other reference. One other reference in in a, in a Roman um, in a Roman history book from the time, but I think it maybe it was later in the second century. Of you mean more like judicial documents, like Romans yes. were prolific record keepers, but they recorded stuff mostly on. Papyrus, probably in the Antioch, on the eastern provinces, right? That probably did not survive. What would have been the motive? Assuming the Jews would have tried him and executed him or turned him over to the Romans for execution, what would have been the motivation? Would would would, would he have been seen as a threat, a heretic, or would they have arguably just ignored him as just sort of a crazy guy? So. Um it's interesting he was erratic, because he's erratic when he had to be done away with. He was upsetting the whole apocart there. That's why that spineless Pontius Pilate uh, <laughs> turned it over to uh, the Jews and voted on him because he was scared of the Jews. Even though the Romans could have wiped them all out, he was still scared of an upset. He didn't need that in his tenure. Well, that, that's the gospel version. That, that's the PR version. So if of um, what so, he did. Let, me, let me tell you what the yeah. Talmud says now. Um, the all the references of Yeshua and Nazareth in the Talmud. Were, were taken out by Christian censors in the medieval uh, Europe. So um, if you open t- a Talmud today, most likely you won't find any reference to Yeshua Natsri because they were taken out. Um, not so many references. It, it seems like the Jewish sources were not terribly interested in creating a formal response, um, either because it wasn't significant enough 
Uh, it wasn't internal. It means it was if 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 the Gentiles adopt Christianity, it seems like it's a good thing for us. You know, it, it, the world seems to adopt closer, somewhat of a closer theological perspective about God than uh, you know than the pagan world. Um, I think if Christianity was a major force within Judaism, which it never was, uh, I think we would have heard more of a firm, formal kind of response because then it kind of threatens. Um, the existence of Judaism uh, in, in this pure, unadulterated form. So, but the few references that we do have were taken out by the Christian censors. So now, actually, you could get today Talmuds that we could, there's there's books sold, these small little books called Chesronot Hashas, which means the you know the censored parts of the Talmud, uh, where it gives you like all the little snippets from where um, that was they were taken out. Uh, but one of the references, the one that's the, the longest one in Sanhedrin the Talmud Sanhedrin that talks about them executing a fellow by the name of Yeshua Nasri says because he was, like you said, a heretic, someone who had tried to uh, uh, teach or preach idolatry to the masses, and that is a crime punishable by capital uh, punishment in in a society where Jewish law is enforced. And I'm sorry, who took that out? The Christian censors. Oh, the Christian, the Christian so censors. Why? That's right. What, well, I guess they thought it was uh, disparaging to JC or to Christianity, and they just took it out. And what are you going to do about it? But it's entirely consistent with their Yeah, but it's, the it's not. There's no consistency in. anywhere. That's one thing we know. It, there's no consistency in the in in the uh, in the in the New Testament itself. It says that the Romans killed them. So, um, and and. Uh, I, you know, I guess they assumed that they don't want the they don't want the Jews to have, and I don't know what what the rationale was. Uh, uh, but remember, as we'll see today, the Christian uh, responses uh, to Judaism or tr- Christian treatment of Jews historically has never been uh, strictly rational, to say the least. So that's so that's so that's the uh, the personality himself. Uh, I'm, I think for the purpose of this classes, I personally, if you if I had to had to had to bet, I would say he did exist. Kind of at the time uh, where you know where uh, uh, you know kind of the the old test the New Testament story is, is somewhat accurate as to who executed him I don't know uh, I suspect um, that it might have been the Jews it might have been the Romans who knows you know I, I used to make a joke <laughs> this is a joke uh, that you know what yeah of course we executed him and if he comes back we'll execute him again and that was a joke. <laughs> Uh, so I, I don't know exactly who executed him. I said there, there is rationale, there is basis for the Jews have executed him. Um, um, it's I, I would say probably more like most likely that we did not execute him. We don't do crucifixion, obviously. Um, it's probably there was some sort of complicit agreement either with the Jews or with the Romans or I, I, the, the Jews certainly if they executed him was not via crucifixion for sure. That's for sure. Um, um, what actually happened, who knows? Um, but I think for the purpose of discussion, let's assume he did exist and he was executed for whatever reason. Uh, by whomever, uh, I don't think it really changes the the uh, the, um, the perspective that we have to have towards Christianity because that is a religion that that uh, develops years and years and years and decades after uh, the the individual himself is gone. Um, okay, so that's so that's JC and the historical JC. Now, what about the rise of Christianity? So it's very important for us to realize at this time um, this there was a crucial point in 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 the Jewish world, but even in the, in the greater uh, secular, in the Roman world, where uh, the Romans, uh, they were pluralistically pagan. So what that means is, is that they're pagan. They have who knows how many visible gods. 
you know, the god for this and god for that. And, you know, you want to either Google like the Roman or the Greek god for, I don't know, sunlight uh, through blinders, you know. They, they had, it was, it was very much compartmentalized, uh, their powers. Uh, the Romans kind of adopted all the Greek gods. The Romans, uh, they uh, consume um, land and they consume along with that kind of the culture, but also the gods and all the powers of, let's say, the Egyptians uh, or, uh, or the, uh, the Persians uh, or uh, the, the Assyrians. All these groups, they all kind of came with their, with their own collective uh, set of pagans and the Romans were pluralistic about it and they just adopted it. So much so that we have Roman historians documenting that the Romans at that time in the first century had uh, in excess of 30,000 gods. Um, that, yeah, that's uh, now remember, uh, Roman historians are notorious for exaggeration. Uh, but even if they're exaggerating, if they're doubling the number, it's still an enormous <laughs> number. Uh, and there's this one religion which was a dominant force. The Jews were 10% of the Roman world. The Jews were a huge, a huge factor uh, in, 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 in the Roman Empire. And they have a radically different approach. And they have a universal vision. And they have a perspective on morality. And they have this invisible, one, only one God. It was, it was a bizarre and exotic idea that was very, very appealing to the Romans. The Romans uh, shared with uh, Jews a fascination for knowledge, uh, kind of in the way that the Greeks did. Jews were universally literate. So there was something very exciting uh, about Judaism uh, to, to the Romans, uh, kind of in a similar way today where the, uh, we call them perhaps the legacy religions um, that have existed for thousands of years. Uh, in today's world, are not so appealing to, let's say, the more sophisticated uh, people. You know, there's, they kind of lost their flair, even Judaism. You know, even there's young Jews today, unfortunately, that don't find meaning within Judaism, and they have, where do they go? They go to the Near Eastern religions. The Near Eastern religions also have that exotic mystique to them, and there's, you know, there's the uh, uh, mysticism and, and these ideas that are very appealing to people, and even the very, very sophisticated, or especially the more intellectual people. That existed in a major way in the Roman world, but the exotic religion was Judaism. So, uh, so there was uh, the, uh, there was a um, fascination, a very uh, an interest with uh, with uh, that Ro- that Romans had with Jews, but they were never allowed to join because if you join, well, they were allowed to join, but if you join, it means joining all the way. Adopting all of the law of Moses, right? Observing the Shabbat, the circumcision, kosher, all these laws, and that is obviously a you know a big uh, big hill to climb. But also, it was a persecuted religion. So we see kind of a world where there's a tremendous tension, where people are are, are, are disenchanted with the uh, with the way of or with the religion. Uh, the the um, incumbent religion, and are entranced and excited with this, you know, this Judaism, a very different perspective. But there are a lot of barriers of entry, and what Christianity is going to do when they unlock the doors and they allow all the Gentiles in, they're going to um, uh, be flooded by this uh, this uh, dormant or this interest uh, in, in Judaism. Uh, but even before that, we have many uh, Roman uh, converts to Judaism. 
You know, the most famous convert of them all. Who knows? Anyone knows? Anyone here? Unculus? Uh, well, Hadrian, no, Hadrian, Hadrian certainly was not a convert. Hadrian, Hadrian did everything. Hadrian was one of the most successful in trying to dismantle. Um, uh, Nero. There, there are those that say that maybe Nero. Um, we, uh, in Jewish sources, that we say that the, um, the Roman emperor, um, Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, converted uh, to Judaism. The Talmud brings all these tremendous debates uh, with Antoninus and, and Rabbi Yehuda Anasir, Judah the Prince. We'll learn more about this next time we have a history class. Uh, he uh, assumed emperorship in the year 161. Right so, huh? Right after Trajan. Uh, no, Trajan. Trajan is uh, Trajan is, is dead in the year 117. So that would be Trajan then Hadrian. Trajan. Right, and then after that, who, uh, um, Hadrian dies in the year 138, and then uh, who comes after that? I mentioned it last week. I don't remember his name. Um, Someone else, I forgot. <laughs> um, but uh, Marcus Anton- Antoninus, in the year 161, we have in the Talmud um, these accounts of him, uh, of him, uh, of him studying Torah with Rabbi, Rabbi Judah the Prince and having these debates and you know like these wonderful like amazing debates of like when does someone get uh, a soul at the time of inception or the time of birth. All these like cool debates that Rabbi, Rabbi Judah the Prince had with Antoninus, and interestingly, he won all the debates. Antoninus, and you know, and, and Rabbi Judah the Prince says, "Oh, this thing I learned from Antoninus, and, he, and I have a verse to prove it." You know, uh, I might have mentioned this in a, in a previous class a while ago. Uh, Antoninus asked Rabbi, "Right, the body and the soul can each exonerate themselves, right? The body says, right, the, the someone dies, body and soul get separated." And each one of them could, could exonerate themselves from, from, from judgment. How so? The body says, look at me. I'm like a stone ever since the soul left me. I'm, I'm useless. And the soul says, look at me. I'm, I'm like flying in the air like a bird without the body. So each one of them could, could, could kind of um, weasel out of, 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 of accountability for their actions because each one of them will say, hey, look at me. I, I, without, without my partner, I couldn't have done anything. You guys remember we talked about that? And he gives him the and then and so Rabbi Judah the prince responds. Uh, well, he gives him the example of someone who had a king who had an orchard who had one uh, one lame watchman and one blind watchman, and he put them there in charge of, of, of guarding the orchard. Remember that. So that's an example of of, of of what it was like in that world. You have a fascination with Judaism. You have a lot of exposure of these two. Uh, dramatically different cultures, but somewhat very similar in some areas, very similar, and 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 an interest. So that's from the secular, from the from the from the general world at large within Judaism itself. It's also a very tumultuous time, as we mentioned at the uh, at the beginning of the first century. Uh, the people sense the end of the Second Temple. It's clear. There's a lot of infighting. There's a lot of, of factionalism amongst the people. Right. There is a weakening of the offices of normative Judaism. The Sanhedrin already leaves. Everyone sees basically that the Judaism is kind of, uh, uh, it's or the Judaism is 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 under threat, and that is a time where uh, where new ideas or new variants are going to spring forth. Additionally, uh, at a time of uh, at a time where uh, People are, are down if there's despair, if there's a lot of worry, if there's fear. Right? What do people tra- traditionally do? They always uh, think about the Messiah. Right? The idea of a Messiah is hope. It's redemption. It's reclamation. 
Right. So whenever there's a time where the Jewish people are the most downtrodden, there's always going to be a rise of messianic expectation. So the Jewish people, so, so a lot of these different factors uh, uh, kind of come together to create a lot of these offshoots that have the messianic fervor to them. So we mentioned the Essenes last uh, last time. The Essenes were virtually identical. Well, I don't say I won't say identical, but the original Judeo Christians are very similar to the Essenes. This is a group of Jews, observed Judaism, right? Are are especially concerned about purity, about asceticism. Um, they have um, this. Um, uh, fascination with Messiah, with the end of days, with, you know, the end is coming, hope and salvation is around the corner, right? It's always darkest before, uh, it's darkest before dawn. And the Essenes died, and the Christians sprouted into uh, becoming a major religion. Um, <clears throat> but what's very important to note is that had Paul not abrogated the law, had Paul not opened the door to Gentiles to join Christianity, right, to make uh, Judaism distinct from Christianity, this Christianity would have certainly disappeared. Uh, it was not. Uh, it was not very attractive to loyal Jews because they felt uh, that it was. Uh, it, it was somewhat of a. Um, I'm trying to think of the right word here. It was a. Uh, Kind of did a disservice to you know to tradition. It was it was you know it was highlighting certain aspects of Judaism. It was neglecting other aspects of Judaism. We see you know Jesus himself was someone who wasn't so fastidious about observance of Shabbat, observance of Jewish law, uh, uh, um, loyalty to the Torah was was something that was not so emphasized. So it wasn't exciting for Jews and for Gentiles. It was too much of uh, the 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 the, uh, uh, the amount uh, uh, that they would have to give up uh, was too much for them to actually join. Uh, so Christianity would have certainly certainly disappeared, just like the Essenes died. Um, the Essenes and the Sadducees they they all they all they all disappeared. So these two. Uh, so this is one major shift that happened at the development of the religion. Paul, Abraham, and the law, Judaism, and Christianity are now two, uh, two religions. And additionally, there is going to be a, a, an evolution of Christianity, Christianity's perspective of who Jesus is or was from being just merely the Jewish Messiah to being some sort of a deity. This is also a remarkable departure from where it started. It started off very important. Jude, Christianity started off as a Jewish sect, a Judeo-Christian. They were identical to regular Jews. They, they, you couldn't tell the difference. They would pray in the same synagogue. They would all eat kosher. They would study Torah. Everything. They looked like Jews. They acted like Jews. They were part of the Jewish community. Yet, they believed that the dead Savior was their Savior, and there was Messiah. They had, they, they, there was just one aspect of uh, of of their worldview that was different, but it wasn't something that was readily apparent. So, in fact, we look at Paul abrogating the law as being a very very positive thing. In fact, uh, there is a an ancient Jewish tradition that holds that Paul remained loyal to Judaism to his last day. There's a book that is more than a thousand years old, uh, that claims, it's a Jewish book quoted by some of the members of the Tosafot, that claims that Paul, or Saul, 
realized or the rabbis realized that there was a growing problem with this Judeo-Christian sect because you have your neighbor and he's a really nice guy and he comes over to you for a Shabbat meal and he studies Torah and he looks and acts and behaves in every way like a regular Jew but you have no idea that he's a closet Christian. What are you going to do? Like, how would You basically have two, uh, not two religions, but one religion that has uh, adherence to some other a- uh, aspect of, uh, of, of religious life that you don't agree with or the majority of Jews don't agree with. Paul comes along and makes it very clear. You can only be one. You can't be a Judeo-Christian anymore. Right? Judaism is Judaism the way it was. Christianity is a totally different religion. You don't observe Shabbat. You don't, uh, you don't have Shabbat. On, on, on sa- originally it was on Saturday. Now it's on Sunday. Uh, there's, um, it's open to the uncircumcised. There's no Torah study. Nothing. Right? Only belief of, in, in, in JC is, is, is what's, is what's is what required. Everyone has to make a decision. If you're a Judeo-Christian, you have to choose one or the other. Yeah, the question is if like you're if you know, do you want your daughter to get engaged to your neighbor's son and you know they they have a um, they have there's a and the point is is that the idea of the Mashiach is a very core we'll talk about a little more today, it's a very core element of Judaism. And if you are um, uh, latching on to uh, to a false messiah, it can be very dangerous. And we see this in the 17th century with, uh, with Shabtai Tzvi. Shabtai Tzvi, if you Google the name, read the story, Shabtai Tzvi was a false messiah that tore apart <coughs> the Jewish world, tore them apart uh, for hundreds of years. Even today, we still feel the repercussions. Um, and he was a, a false messiah that was much more uh, harmful and injurious to the Jews than Jesus ever, Jesus ever was. It's very dangerous uh, because uh, it could spiral out of control. You have um, uh, you have uh, the second, especially after the the, the false messiah is dead, uh, then the people that believed uh, that he uh, was true with their, you know with, with with everything with every fiber of their of their consciousness now they have a problem. They have a quagmire. We have kind of a parallel to this today, um, huh? Schneerson. With Schneerson, exactly. With the with the Chabad Lubavitch uh, Hasidim, you know, they Lubavitch has had a tradition for centuries that they're going to have seven rebbe's, and the last one will be Mashiach. So the last one was a fantastic guy, Rabbi Schneerson. He died in 1992. Uh, everyone was all the Lubavitch Hasidim. If they're honest with you, they were positive at the time when he was still alive that he was the Messiah. They, everyone, you know, it's clear. He died. What do you do when he's dead? So a lot of them, unfortunately, they still hold on even to this day. They believe that he is the Messiah. He's coming back. And remember, that's not a new idea. <laughs> a dead Messiah who's having a second coming is not a new idea. It's very old and it, it's very dangerous. It's, it's very, very old. I mean, it predates. This, I mean, JC, mm-hmm. how's that? Who was a false Messiah? Well, I mean, just the hero stories. Of yeah, but the, the, the hero, a hero, a hero is different than a Messiah. Right. Uh, a Messiah is a very when we talk about Messiah, it's a very specific role that they're going to play in, in, in the Jewish history. Once they're dead, they're dead. They ain't coming back. Uh, but um, this is a problem even today that's tearing apart the, the Chabad um, um, Hasidic movement because you have some 
Uh, you have some people that believe that he uh, is alive even, he's just whatever, he's coming back, he was the Messiah, then he died, some people say that, and there are even those that are beginning to ascribe some sort of divine qualities to him. I'm not even making this up. And that, that, that's a very dangerous thing. Um, and I, I think they're going to have to, there's going to come a point in time where they will too have to face this, uh, this quagmire, right? The, you have to choose your allegiances, you know? You may have been wrong, and that's fine, you know? A lot of people have been wrong when it comes to messianic predictions. Uh, but yes, it's a very dangerous thing, uh, especially as there's this development uh, or this progression, this evolution of JC being a messiah, right, to being some sort of a divine being. That was a major problem, and that's why we say that Paul abrogated the law and making these two distinct uh, religions is a very good thing for Judaism. Perhaps he was even loyal to the end. Um, in the Talmud, the Talmud tells a story about Shmuel HaKatan, Shmuel HaKatan, uh, where uh, he was, the sages say, who is going to say a blessing against the Minim? Minim, Minim is a heretic. Clearly it's referring to Judeo-Christians. What they would do is very interesting. <laughs> they, uh, um, we know the Amidah, Amidah prayer. It's sometimes called the Amidah, and sometimes there's another word uh, for the Amidah prayer. Who knows what the other name for the Amidah? Shemona Esrei. What is Shemona Esrei mean? Eighteen. Eighteen, right? The Amidah is called eighteen because it's eighteen blessings. Now, if you actually count the blessings, it's actually nineteen. There's nineteen. Why? Because in the in the first century, about the year eighty-five, uh, one of the rabbis whose name was Shmuel Hakatan. Uh, composed or wrote another blessing against the minim, against uh, the heretics. And it was a clear reference to Judeo-Christians, clearly. And what they would do is they would ask someone who they suspected to be a Judeo-Christian, why don't you leave the services? And then they would leave the services, and then they would have to denounce their Judeo-Christian dumb, whatever, <laughs> Christianity. Uh, that was a way that they, that was a tool that they used to weed it because it was a problem. You have two, you have Judeo Christians living within your midst and you don't know uh, what they believe in this very important, very important matter. Um, you know, it says that, you know, he, if anyone like said, oh, I, I forgot how to say it, remind me how to say the blessing, it's like, oh, okay, we know exactly where, you, where you're holding. So what would follow? Be denounced? No, the point is that at least you know that. It's, it's clear. It's not underground. I, I think there's a parallel today. Even, even today, within the Chabad uh, Hasidu, where I think it's a complete parallel, and I'll say it on tape, and I don't, I, I, I think it's true. I, I, I'm, willing to, I'm willing to say this publicly because I really believe it's true. Uh, they have leaders that are very responsible leaders who are trying to um, come out in the open and say, listen, our Rebbe was a fantastic, fantastic leader. He's very impactful, very successful. He brought Torah to all corners of the world. Fantastic. We have to move on. Right? He passed away, and let's move on. Because it's very dangerous, especially as the younger generation is, they hear about this Rebbe that they never met, uh, and they're told things from a very early age. He's Mashiach. They, they still sing Yechia. They, they sing, they sing, they, you know, they still sing it in 770 in Crown Heights. They still sing. The Rebbe's alive and he's Mashiach. And they, I had one of my students, a different student of mine, he said, hey, what does the word Shlita mean? Shlita is an acronym that they say about a rabbi. When a rabbi this, Shlita. And it, it's an acronym. It stands, it stands for Shiyiske Liros Yom Tavaruchim. He should merit to see good long days. You say that when you say a rabbi's name, you say rabbi so-and-so, Shlita, right? Which is an acronym. I could say he should live in... She says, but you say that about dead people also. I say, no. Dead people say something else. Zatzal, Zichron Levracha, may his merit be blessed. Allah shalom, peace be on him. You don't say Shlita. He says, wait a minute, but I saw on, on Rabbi Shneer, Shneer, I'm like... 
That's the point. Some some people still think that he's alive, and it's and it's it's bordering bordering on insanity. It's very unfortunate, but it's creating a tremendous internal uh, uh, schisms within that community, the same way it did to the Judeo Christians community. Would be an accurate statement to say that this early Judeo Christians could have been ever considered like sort of like a fifth column? I'm sorry. Would it be considered like a fifth column? Who? The Judeo Christians? A fifth yeah. column? What does it mean a fifth column? Well, it's a modern <coughs> expression of. Of what? Just enemy, enemy within. I don't think it was an enemy. I, I, I think it was a danger within. It was a danger because, and we see this other places. Um, our religion has to remain a, a single religion. Um, we, we like to be unified. Um, we were told countless times in the Torah that if you guys, you guys are, are like a family, right? You're sons to, to, to God, so to speak. Um, God loves us like a, we're like a family. We cannot, we cannot tolerate uh, infighting. Um, like we mentioned this last week, right? When, when God sees us fighting amongst each other, he says, you know what, I'll beat some Gentiles to finish the job. That's what happens. And any time in Jewish history where there is tremendous persecution, it is always... Uh, 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 preceded by a tremendous uh, um, explosion in internal fighting Jew against Jew. The Talmud goes on uh, these very long uh, discussions about these instances where you had different parts of the community acting in different ways. You know, it says if you have two Jewish com- or one Jewish community that half the town follows this method of practice, half the town follows that method of practice, then you have basically two Torahs, you know, you have two Judaisms, and even the most minor uh, customs, like, uh, for example, the custom as to whether or not we wear tefillin on the intermediate days of holidays. So, let's say the holiday of, of, of Passover. So, you have two days of Passover, holidays. You have, a, you know, four intermediate days, and then are two days of, 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 uh, of holiday. So, those four days, those are not actual holidays. They're intermediate days. They're these hybrid days of of, of Passover, of holiday. On the one hand, but also days where uh, where um, where all sort of work is is permitted. So, do you wear tefillin or not? It's something very minor. But in a, in one synagogue, it's very important to not have half the people wearing tefillin, half the people not wearing tefillin, because that seems to be a manifestation of two two Judaisms. Even something as minor as that. No one's claiming, oh, we don't wear tefillin. Right? It's just only during these days. It's a minor custom, but because of the discrepancy, we're very, very careful to, uh, to make sure. So that's why they made separate, either they have a separate uh, a prayer surface or they put up a mechitza between the two. Uh, that's very important for us. Uh, so yes, and it is a tremendous danger if you have two Judaisms uh, uh, trying to coincide. Five or six. So that's a problem. I, 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 yeah, I, that, that's why I, if you ask me, I think we have only one. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't believe in... in uh, in, in politics and in family. I don't believe in it. You know, I think it's, it's various levels of, of observance or various, everyone's on their own level. I'm fine with that. But to say that there's different Judaism, God forbid. I, I think most people would even agree today. You know, the differences amongst the different, different groups in Judaism are, are, are much, much smaller than they used to be. We could all agree on that at least. So when did Christianity group in the Jewish, um, what do you call it, uh, yeah, humanistic Judaism. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, you got to carve yourself something, right? New niche. Yes, David. When did Christianity, I thought it really, my understanding was it really took off when Rome adopted it. Yeah, so. It was very popular. It was popular. It was popular. It was a. 
persecuted, but it took off as a major world religion in the, in the fourth century when Constantine adopted it, the Council of Nicaea, etc. But it was still a major a major force in the second century, in the third you know in the third century. It was growing. It wasn't as big as it became. But when when Rome adopts Christianity, you basically have the Byzantine Empire, which is you know the uh, uh, Roman Christians. You know, Rome had their um, Rome had their uh, their empire themselves had had religion. There was a state religion. You know, it was kind of like a, a, a affiliation to the state. Not only meant kind of politically, but also spiritually. Um, so Christianity and Judaism was granted as an, an exception. Right, Jews were allowed to practice Judaism even in under the under Roman rule. Um, probably because the Romans understood that if the Jews were forced to uh, to adopt uh, the Roman state religion, they would rebel, which indeed, indeed they did uh, when they were compelled, and like we spoke about last week, uh, Hadrian. So until Constantine, is there any estimate of how many, how many Jews were lost to Christianity versus how many Jews, Jews lost, lost to Christianity was never, I won't say it's negligible, but it was never a lot. Um, typically, even today, even today when you have the missionaries and they're trying to attract Jews, um, it's always been like the Achilles heel of Christianity is that they're never able to make any inroads or significant inroads in courting Jews. Um, the Jews that adopt Christianity are typically the less informed, the uh, people that want a, uh, you know, a hot meal and, you know, and, and a shoulder to cry on, so to speak, um, but not the more educated Jews. It's always like that, and that's why there's so many efforts in, in trying to uh, um, uh, missionize Jews in Israel and you know, there's tremendous, tremendous, tremendous amounts of money being spent by various Christian, group, Christian groups to try to, uh, mis- you know, missionize Jews, especially Jews in Israel, and especially Jews that don't have uh, very high socioeconomic uh, stature, status, or very high education, stuff like that. So, like in the northern parts of Israel, these little kibbutzim where Jews are very far from Judaism, that's where they prey upon them, prey with an E. Yeah, so... Um, but uh, on a big scale, it's 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 typically not been that they haven't been that that successful, and it's been a problem actually. It's a it's a tremendous philosophical problem uh, that the Christians have, where they uh, their philosophy is that okay, the Jews had it, they lost it. We're the we're we're the fulfillment, so to speak, of the Torah. Uh, and hence the Torah is, is not valid replacement anymore. Replacement theology. Replacement theology, exactly. You had it, you lost it. The Muslims come along and say, oh, you had it, <laughs> you lost it. The Christians had it, they lost it, we have it, we're the last ones. It's replacement theology, exactly. Um, but the problem is, is that somehow the Jews didn't disappear. If the Christians are the fulfillment of them, the Jews don't need to exist anymore. That's why they invented the idea of, of the wandering Jew, that the Jews are supposed to be... Um, uh, test, test, testament, ver, something like that. The fancy words in Latin, which means the nation of a testimony. Right? The Jews are are supposed to be these wandering people that are going to forever oppress because they rejected uh, JC. Uh, but the existence of us as a flourishing, vibrant Jewish community is a problem to uh, to Christian th- uh, theology because we're supposed to be gone uh, because they are the fulfillment of of everything that we stood for. Jews will recognize Christ. That's right. That's why that that's why uh, that's why they're spending so much 
uh, money and effort in doing that, yeah. uh, largely unsuccessfully, but it's still very uh, troubling. You know, in, in my neighborhood, in, in southwest Houston, there's this, there's this uh, massive, massive, like, uh, uh, you know, messianic temple. And, like, it's, it's disturbing if you, if you drive by. It's, like, on the airport near 59. Uh, it's very disturbing if you, like, drive by. You see this magnificent building with all these Jewish symbols. And they love Jewish symbols. And there's Hebrew letters everywhere. Um, and it's clear that they're just trying to deceive Jews and say, oh, this is like a temple. Like, and then it's you walk Christian. in there, and it's a Christian. It's, it's a Christian it's, church with Jewish Jews. trappings. Yeah, exactly. And, and they're clearly trying to is target. This, is this a Jew, Jews for yeah, it's Jews for Jesus, or, or yeah, Messianic, uh, Messianic right. trying to be Messianic Judaism, which is right. just a code name for, for yeah. Christianity, trying to uh, attract Jews. And that's a very, very troubling thing, because it, it does prey upon people's ignorance and, uh, and try to compel them to, uh, to, to embrace Christianity. When I was, uh, moved here a couple months ago, when was temple shopping, yeah. I went on the websites to see what was in the area, and I did run up against that group and then I was trying to find out okay which were reformers conservative which were orthodox and it took me a while reading that to realize okay they're not really Jewish at all that's right that's right Rabbi Tova Singer Singer has a a Jews for Judaism and he's got an excellent Mm -hmm. uh, exegetical uh, treaty on uh, Isaiah 53 Mm -hmm. and it's a very strong movement uh, against anti-missionary Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm saying um, those kind of things, like you mentioned, Isaiah 53 and then Jeremiah 31, oh, yeah. all these, they take these verses from the Bible that, so to speak, they seem to prove Christianity. It's a bunch of nonsense. Um, <clears throat> they, they, first of all, they have the words like ke'ari, they, they, they switch it. The word alma, the word al- does the word alma mean a virgin? Does it mean a young girl? Yeah. It's... it's um, uh, Brit Chadash, right? the new... Yeah. Uh, a, a new uh, if you actually read the verse, nothing's historicized. Oh, yeah, exactly. They try to they try to try to uh, shoehorn uh, evidence yeah. for JC into Jewish text, and it's a bunch of nonsense because they're just perverting the uh, uh, the um, interpretation of the words to make it uh, jive with what they're trying to prove. So, like I said, there's lots of you know. If you want to read about this, there's a lot of very detailed textual um, polemics about this issue. Okay, so. Um, so they'll open the doors to non-Jews, and also another important point for our discussion is that they're going to uh, gradually shift away from Jesus being a uh, being a Messiah, a Jewish Messiah, observing all the laws and everything, to being somewhat of a deity. Uh, now remember, even within Christianity today, um, they have always been tortured with contradictions, with paradoxes, what exactly is Jesus, etc. I have a great quote here from uh, the book that I mentioned last week. Um, Throughout the two millennia of its existence, Christianity has waged war upon itself, basically because it never clearly defined itself to the satisfaction of all its would-be adherents. The concepts of the two nat- uh, natures of Yeshu, Yeshu is, the, is J.C., is it physical, is it godly, the dogmas of the, tr- of the Trinity, the virgin birth of Yeshu, and the role of his mother Mary, the theory of the original sin, the incorporation of much pagan and, uh, ritual and symbolism in Christianity, the role of purgatory and hell, the death of the Messiah, how does Messiah die, you know, if not of one piece of God, so to speak, are all vexing problems in Christian thought and history. 
by the second century of Christianity, numerous disputes and struggles were underway regarding all of these issues. So this is a, this is going to be a problem within Christianity itself as to what exactly they mean when they refer to Yeshu or JC. Is he is he Messiah? <coughs> is he uh, is he part of God? How do you have parts of God? All those things were uh, were were very much debated, and even still today. Uh, but um, the Council of Nicaea, a very famous council um, in the year 325, 325 was 325. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, was uh, convened to address this problem. And what's I, I, to me, I find ironic as we embark on this discussion, it's like the number one most important character in the entire religion is JC. And you had to convene a council 300 years after he's dead to actually just say, well, what is he? You know, think of how bizarre that is. Like the most important element of, of the religion was agreed upon by a collection of bishops 300 years after he died. And what they actually did was they declared that, 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 that Jesus was a certain part of God or element of God or demigod or whatever you want to call it. And they also um, censored, they censored the books, the Christian writings, to remove the ones that seem to present Jesus in somewhat of a, you know, the, in the respect of, of the way he actually was, which is a regular mortal, mortal uh, human. Well, there's an argument within the Christian faith at that time about the Trinity being a triangle or the Trinity is a straight line. And, uh, you know, God the Father, God the Son, and the Spirit, and in the triangle, God and the Son and the Spirit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the Council of Nicaea came up with the very uh, strong argument within the Christian church. And they came up with very distinct wording that produced the Nicene Creed. That's right. Yeah. That's right, but my, my, my point, my point was, is that at the time of the formation, it wasn't clear and it had to be agreed upon, which I think is bizarre. Um, yes. But remember, I, important to note that uncertainty and lack of clarity in what uh, in, in thought has never actually has actually prevented Christians from beha- behaving irrationally. Like I mentioned, like you know, we talk about. Jews, many, many thousands of Jews were slaughtered because we killed their God. Deicide, right? And if you just think how bizarre that sounds, like, if we killed a God, what does that, first of all, what does it even mean? But second of all, God, by definition, means power, right? And if he was a God, well, then he had the power to stop it. And if he didn't stop it, then, well, he was complicit it, or complacent. Uh, uh, he approved of it. So there's no reason to, for us to be persecuted as a result. Additionally, you know, we, they say that, hey, Jesus died for their sins. You know? So the fact that Jesus died is an uh, exoneration of other people's, you know, they are granted uh, it, eternal uh, salvation because he died for their sins. Well, then they should be thanking us, no? We should be getting, you know, we should be getting thank, you, thank you cards with uh, Starbucks gift cards in them. So yes, like I said, uh, uniformity of thought never was something that was uh, uh, preventing them from acting the way they acted, but there was some sort of approach, like you mentioned, uh, to try to get clarity. But even today, there's so many different, uh, there's so many different uh, offshoots of, of, of Christianity religion. Um, and therefore, um, we say that Christianity is different uh, to us than, uh, than, uh, um, than Islam. Uh, Islam is uh, I- Islamic theology, and what they believe uh, with regards to God is very close to Judaism, uh, maybe even identical. As opposed to Christianity, that's idolatry. You know, the second we ascribe divine qualities to a man, that's idolatry. So, walking into a church is equivalent to walking in a house of, of idol worship. You know, there's it's not so clear that by Jewish law you'd be allowed to do that. But 
as opposed to walking into a mosque, then they may be fine. But my mom says even a lot of prayer in a mosque, no problem. So if you walk in the church, but that's for with a religious intent, if you walk into St. Peter's to, to look at Michelangelo, uh, that's a question. That this is not so, so clear. Um, so um, would Rabbi Schneerson walk into St. Peter's? Oh, for sure not. Rabbi, I, I don't, I'm saying, well, he's dead now. Uh, <laughs> just, <laughs> just to clarify, uh, but uh, he ain't walking nowhere. Uh, but I wouldn't walk into a church uh, because there's a, a problem. You know, uh, it's not so clear. You got to do it. It's, it's a house of an idolatry. It's a house where idolatry is embraced. There's lots of sim, uh, symbolism, and uh, it's not so clear. You know, there's a question. Like uh, I saw a, a question last night on the internet. Um, someone asked Rabbi Avadia. Rabbi Avadia is one of the primary halachic authorities um, of this past century. He asked him, "So, what if your if, if your job is you're an air conditioning installing guy? That's what you do. Are you allowed? To, and you get a big job, a big contract to install? I don't know, Lakewood Church, right? Uh, Lakewood Church. I know they're not so into the whole Jesus thing, right? <laughs> but like, uh, 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 you know, a real like, a, are you allowed to walk? Are you allowed to go in just to install air conditioners? He says it's not so clear. Like maybe yes, maybe no. It's better to send non-Jews and to do the work. It, it's a, it's a question. Even you know, even if it's not going there for uh, for any benefit of the church itself, just to do your job, it's not so clear by Jewish law because it is idolatry. Either way, let's get to the topic of the day. Uh, and that is that Jews for 2,000 years have rejected Christianity as a religion. They rejected JC as a Messiah. And they obviously, for sure, rejected JC as any sort of divine being. Why do they do that? So I'm going to go through one by one. Number one, we reject JC as a Messiah because a Messiah is someone who is comprised with a certain set of qualifications, right? There's, a, uh, there's the profile that Messiah fills, and J.C. does not fill any of the profile. Additionally, Messiah has several accomplishments that it's outlined in, very broadly outlined. I have all the verses if you want to hear more about this. J.C. didn't accomplish any of the accomplishments that uh, Messiah is tasked with doing. And lastly, Messiah doesn't mean just an individual, it means also an era. There's a messianic era. And the era since the time of J.C. is clearly not messianic era. So let's go with this one by one. Uh, Messiah's qualifications. He has to be from the house of David. The house of David. Now, Christianity, they it's not so clear what they do believe, but this whole virgin birth thing clearly doesn't jive with being from the house of David. Because if he got no dad, well, then how is actually he descending from the house of David? Also, um, in Christian sources, in the book of Luke and the book of Matthew, we have differing opinions as to how exactly his lineage does come from uh, from King David. Uh, is uh, in one of them, it says that his father, uh, that J- the J- Jesus's grandfather, Jesus' father Joseph, Joseph's son of Jacob, and another one it says Jesus' father, son of Eli. Right? Just remarkable. In two books, the two of the Gospels, it just has a different, uh, a different uh, um, lineage back to back to King David. But clearly, he has to be from King David. He was not, especially if you go with the whole uh, with the whole virgin birth thing. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, he has to study Torah and perform mitzvahs like David, his ancestor. We know Jesus was not someone who was terribly. Uh, uh, um, uh, Accurate or not accurate, but uh, dedicated to performance of mitzvahs. He was not a remarkable scholar. We know that for sure. He was uh, somewhat. Of, he was a student, maybe, uh, of, of of scholars, but he wasn't remarkable in a scholarship. Clearly, he was someone who preached against the tradition of of David, his ancestor, 
allegedly, obviously. Um, he was, we have a record in the book of uh, John, uh, I think it's chapter, what, 9, verse 16. It talks about Jesus desecrating the Shabbat. He wasn't even observant to the level of the average Jew at his time. So he was not an ordained rabbi. Oh, no. For sure not. That's what's being, it's what's being said a lot in the that, Christian community. That he was... A rabbi. Well, he was a student, uh, or perhaps, we don't know for sure. Remember, the historical Jesus is very uh, elusive to actually pin down. But in one of the sources, it talks about him being a student of a rabbi. I don't think there's any source that says he actually got smicha. For sure not. Um, he will compel the Jews to follow uh, the Torah. We know Jesus did the opposite. The Everything about the impact of Jesus and his disciples and what eventually grew out of this movement was against the Torah or uh, 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 going away from the Torah, in fact, abrogating the Torah ultimately, rejecting the Torah entirely. And lastly, we'll fight the wars of Hashem. Now, this one's a little ambiguous. It doesn't, doesn't, it's not clear if these are physical wars or spiritual wars. Either way, Jesus clearly didn't fight any physical wars, any battles, and he did not uh, fight any spiritual battles as well. So as an individual, his personal complications of the four requirements that are outlined in the Bible and brought down, uh, uh, organized by Maimonides, uh, where he talks about Messiah, he fulfills none of them. Moving on. Uh, accomplishments. So we have about seven things that the Messiah is uh, going to accomplish. Rebuild the temple on Temple Mount. Now, I've, I wasn't there in two and a half years, but I ain't seen no temple there. Clearly, Jesus did nothing to rebuild the temple. Uh, he will gather the Jews from the far flung corner. These are verses in the Torah. This is not even, like a Torah itself says. It says that collect all the Jews from all, from all across. Jesus did none of that, none of the sort. Uh, re-established Jewish law of Israel. In fact, during Jesus' time, Jewish law of Israel was waning, right? The Sanhedrin left in the year 30. Clearly, he did nothing uh, of that sort. Re-institute sacrifices in the temple. None of that he did. Uh, his impact will not only be on the Jews, but on the rest of the world. The rest of the world will adopt, uh, Jew- or will recognize Judaism as being the nation, Jewish being uh, the, 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 children, the, the, uh, the chosen people. He did none of that. Reestablish the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, of course, at his time, the Sanhedrin left. And restart the Jewish calendar law, such as the Shemitah and the Yovel. And of course, he did that, not that, do that. None of the, remarkably, none of the qualifications, none of the accomplishments that the Jewish people, um, uh, the, that the Jewish tradition has always said, as brought down in the verse. These are our verses. These, and you don't need to do any, uh, any textual chicanery to try to, to, try to uh, uh, shoehorn in the meaning of the accomplishments. Uh, the 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 resume of Messiah into the verses. It says these things clearly. So this would, this would appear to be devastating. What, what it's, Christians, what, how do Christians I have no idea. This? I have no idea. Right, exactly. That's what they do. They invent this. Uh, they invent the. They invent the second coming. So if you, which, by the way, is a total invention born out of necessity, and uh, dare I say, very similar to what happened in, in Chabad. Uh, because they also, if you are so married to the idea that the Rebbe is the Messiah and then he dies, mm-hmm. you have to invent an alternative or you have to drop your previous uh, conception. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, there were those that did develop, he's alive, he's not dying, he's not dead, he's coming back, right? They send them fax letters, it's crazy. Restart the Jewish calendar laws, that one? Yeah, yeah so... Um, so I, I, I'm no, no, no. I'm, I'm talking about the laws of Shemitah and Yovel. Yovel are uh, the the year we mentioned. We spoke about. Oh, we never spoke about this here. Shemitah is the laws of 
uh, seizing work every seven years. Uh, in fact, this year, right now, is a sabbatical year. The rest, that's the restart in the, in the 19th century was restarted in Israel, uh, but by no one who resembled Jesus in any way. Uh, but also the laws of Yovel, Yovel every 50 years, the Jubilee laws, uh, where... You take the whole year off? Well, yes, it's back-to-back years. It's very interesting. Uh, year 49 and year 50. 49 is the seventh of the seven-year cycle, and then 50 is the... You know, the Torah says, I'll give you a bumper crop for three years, uh, the year 48, to cover 48, 49, and 50. Wow. Yeah, so... Um, so that, so that was another requirement, and uh, he did not fulfill those either. Now, very important, Maimonides writes this very clearly. Does the Messiah need to do it and perform any miracles? Does the Messiah need to perform any miracles? Absolutely not. And he brings a proof from Rabbi Akiva. We mentioned, we mentioned last week, uh, we talked about Bar Kokhba last week. Bar Kokhba was someone who Rabbi Akiva claimed was the Messiah. But Rabbi but, but, um, but Rabbi Kiva never, or the rabbis never asked him to show proof by doing any miracles. Um, don't think that the, that the Messiah King needs to do some sort of sign or a miracle or kind of suspend the laws of nature or uh, resuscitate dead people. He doesn't need to do that. Right? Rabbi Kiva, who was the greatest scholar of the times of the Mishnah, and he, would, uh, he believed about Bar Kokhba, known as Bar Koziva, uh, that he believed that he was the Messiah or he had the potential to be the Messiah. And all the rabbis thought that he was the Messiah until he died. Which is another thing. Which is another another thing that that the Chabad uh, you talk to people and say it's crazy. They say no. There it says he died in his sins. So it's all, you know Bar Kokhba because he died because of his sins, and therefore it's different than the Rebbe dying because of uh, whatever yeah. stroke or whatever it was. Um, but it says once he was dead, it became clear that he was not the Messiah. So I'm saying this is something that you have to like I say um, textual chicanery. But Bar Kokhba was never asked to do any miracle of any sort. Um, so, yes, let's say, let's assume Jesus walked on water and revived. It doesn't matter. It doesn't move the needle whatsoever. If it happened, how we did it, who knows? Who cares? It's not important. There were a lot of people at that time who were able to do miracles either via, uh, via the power of the Torah. The, the, the Talmud is replete with accounts of, of, um, of Rabbi um, of Pinchas Ben Yari. And he was walking to study Torah and there was a, there was a river in the way. And he says, okay, river out of the way. And the river splits and walks through. So the, the, is there any account anywhere of anyone claiming him to be the Messiah? Joshua split the sea and the Jordan. Moses, no one ever claimed that, 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 that Moses was anything more than a mortal man. Moses is the most criticized person in the entire Torah. Clearly, we have evidence that he did miracles. So, so how come we don't believe that he's God? Because, you know, doing miracles does not guarantee that you're Messiah or God, right? We, we have miracles are a dime a dozen in Jewish history. And these are miracles that we are documented, are evidenced by, pe- by, by millions of people, not accounts written afterwards that are quite dubious in their, uh, in their historicity. But the point is that even if JC did miracles, who knows if he did it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change the reality. Miracles don't prove he's Messiah, and miracles certainly don't prove that he has any divine uh, uh, qualities. Lastly, so Jesus does not fit the personal profile. His accomplishments do not fulfill any of the requirements needed uh, to, uh, to, to prove that he's a Messiah. And the Messianic era, uh, where we say there's no famine, there's no war, 
no envy or harmful competition, there's such abundance, and no other pursuit will be taken other than the pursuit of God. That's one of the four things Maimonides outlines. Brought down verses, there's, there's, a, there's a many, many, many verses. Right? No nation shall raise a sword unto another nation. And if you analyze the past 2,000 years, 2000 years since J.C., we find almost no account of war. That's a joke. We find lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of bloody wars. Um, a bloody in the way American, the American state, not the British state. Um, so, yes, the Messianic era, as outlined in many, many verses across the Jewish Bible, um, clearly we are not living yet in that time. Clearly, Jesus did not fulfill even that aspect of, of Messiah. Now, okay, so... That's why, yes, go ahead. This might be out of sequence, but his teachings, right, charity and everything else, right, in the New Testament, is there anything new that, that, that we can't find out of Jesus' teachings that's not already in existence in the, in the, in the Torah? Absolutely not. <clears throat> Nothing. Well, some, some things where he took it to the extreme, but there was no innovation it was taking the Torah. Like, I have another quote here. Um, the basic uh, Christian doctrine was based upon Jewish beliefs, traditions, and teachings. And he gives a whole bunch of ideas that are Christian ideas that are all in the Torah. The ideas of love, compassion, kindness to the strange and the lowly, immortality of the soul, the resurrection of the dead, faith in one single exclusive creator, self-discipline in sexual and physical matters, reverence for life and holiness for human purpose, all were Jewish ideas. And it was these tenets that formed the core of early Christian belief, and even today. These are, Jew- these are Jewish ideas reformulated and repackaged, but it's not, uh, it's not innovative necessarily. The, the great innovation of Christianity was opening up Jewish ideas to the Gentile world. That's the innovation. The core ideas, they're Jewish ideas. Like I said, Judaism was very exciting and exotic at that time, and still is today. The idea of social welfare. It's a huge, big, huge deal, you know. No Jew ever starved uh, uh, in, in, in a Jewish community because, you know, the idea of charity, the idea of, of taking care of, uh, of your fellow. Those are Jewish ideas and very appealing to the non-Jews um, because there's something very special about being part of a, of a Jewish community. That was adopted uh, by Christianity. So, yes, they did take elements of the Torah and Christ- Christian-sized them or Christian. Christianize them. Thank you. Um, what major innovations? Uh, the, like I said, uh, the uh, um, perversion of the idea of Messiah, uh, that's uh, their idea. Um, the, uh, and, and making Jesus into some sort of divine being is their idea. Um, so and, would your view be that Christianity has been good for the world? Well, listen, um, Maimonides writes that Christianity, for all its flaws is instrumental in teaching the world about somewhat of a semblance of, of, of the Jewish God. Uh, so in, in a grand historical perspective, Christianity and Islam are sort of partnering with Judaism in teaching the world about God. Um, now, we said Christianity, the idea of God, is not exactly uh, the monotheism of, of Judaism and Islam, but the vernacular of one God, of an invisible God, is now ubiquitous across the world. And in a large part, across... Huh? Yes, yes, yes. So, um, could we say Christianity was good for the world? Probably, I would hesitate to say that. Um, You know, there's been thousands of Jewish towns that were slaughtered 
because of Christianity. Um, we have the Inquisition. Uh, we, the Jewish people were banned from living in England for 500 years. Uh, they were expelled from France and Spain and Portugal. And we know what happened um, uh, across the world with pogroms and uh, in, U- in the Ukraine. We have a very, very bad history uh, with the nation that lauds love for your fellow. Um, it wasn't necessarily practiced kind of the way it was preached. Um, the Enlightenment came out of the tyranny of the Christian. Yes, church. yeah, yes, that's true, that's that true. Very, so so the Christian, let's like look at Christianity too. today. Right. Christianity today, I think we, could, we can make the argument that it's a very positive force for morality in, in the world. Um, in, in, in a society that is um, increasingly becoming more decadent, um, just look at where the world was 50 years ago, where it is today. Um, Christianity is kind of doing a lot in, and I would say Islam as well. I know, <laughs> kind of the roles flipped. You know, for the majority of of, of Jewish history, or at least since two thousand years ago, uh, we were much closer and lived in much greater peace with the Muslims than we do with the Christians. But somehow those roles were reversed in the most recent century. Um, but yes, I, I would say there are certain parts of Christianity that were very positive in the world for us Jews probably was you know was uh, very negative obviously um, but for the world at large it teaches uh, they helped spread the doctrine of monotheism um, along with the Muslims and obviously the Jews okay uh, now we don't believe Jesus is Messiah as we mentioned he doesn't fit any of the qualifications personally uh, his accomplishments and the messianic era is clearly not underway we don't believe Jesus is divine of course I just have a few verses here. Um, just This is a verse from Numbers uh, 23. God is not man, that he should be deceitful, nor son of man, that he should, be, he should relent. Right? This idea of giving a man divine, divine uh, uh, attributes or divine qualities is something which is anathema to Judaism. The Shema, which is the basis of Jewish belief, we say the first thing you teach a Jewish child and the last thing uttered by a Jew as before he dies is the Shema. And what does the Shema say? We believe that God is one. This whole parts thing is 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 antithetical uh, uh, to Judaism. Right? The Shema we put it on our doorpost with the mezuzah. We wear it every day with our tefillin to remind ourselves of the idea. The idea of giving a, a, a man, a mortal man, divine qualities is totally anathema uh, uh, to Judaism. See now that I, I am He, and no God is with me. In Deuteronomy thirty-two. Many many verses in the Torah make it abundantly clear that our God is one. There's no parts. None of that nonsense it jives with, with Judaism. We consider worshiping a three-part God as idolatry, and that's why throughout history, many, many, many good thousands of Jews gave up their lives uh, to, not, uh, to not convert to Christianity because Christianity meant idolatry. And idolatry is one of the three sins that in Jewish law we are commanded to give up our lives uh, and not transgress along with adultery and murder. So if someone comes and puts a gun to your head and say, hey, eat the cheeseburger, the non-kosher meat cheeseburger, you'll say, you'll eat it. It's a mitzvah to eat it, because otherwise you'll be killed. But if someone says, puts a gun to your head and says, hey, shoot that guy or else I shoot you, you bite the bullet, because there are certain sins that are worse, um, um, that are the worst thing, the cardinal sins that we, that we don't transgress, even if it means giving up our lives for that's why we have the great stories of the martyrdom of Jewish people during times of the Inquisition. They were burned at the stake. It's just thousands upon thousands of them were burned at the stake. Um, that, uh, that, uh, but that these are 
these are the people that are the greatest heroes of, of, of the Jewish world because they are the ones that made the ultimate sacrifice for, for Judaism. Uh, but that's why we view Christianity as idolatry. Now, I think, ironically, the idea of Jesus and J.C. being classified as a god not only goes against the name, by the way, the term Christ comes from the word Christos, Greek word Christos, which means anointed one, and the, which is the same word as Mashiach. Mashiach means anointed one, right? Jewish teens, would, they would pour oil on their head. That, that's, how, that's how Saul anointed David. And, you know, I'm sorry, Samuel anointed David and Saul and Solomon was anointed. That was the practice done for consecration of a, of a leader. Uh, and the Mashiach is a reference to that, to that, to that idea. Hence the term Christ is the uh, Greek uh, the Greek translation of the word Mashiach, which means anointed one, right, doesn't mean anything in regards to God. The whole idea of God is that that came much, much later. But um, if the Torah was true, which everyone who believes in replacement theology believes, and it in itself says multiple times that this is immutable, it's not going to change, you cannot add or subtract, See Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 11, Deuteronomy 13. You cannot add to the Torah, you cannot subtract from the Torah. The Torah is, if it was true, it still is true, and the Torah clearly precludes any uh, human from having any kind of relation, uh, 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 overlap with, uh, with, with divinity. Uh, and also, remember, this I think is the most important point, and this will bring us to the third point as well. When someone tries to convince you of a nonsensical idea that some human is a god, what's the first question that you ask? Where's the evidence? Why should I believe something as silly as that? We have no reason. The question of why we don't believe should be uh, preceded by why we should believe. Like, what evidence is there? This is a remarkable claim. Some human, right, if he existed, he was a human, right? And everyone agrees that he was human. Why should we believe in this crazy idea that he was God or had some sort of divine qualities? There's no evidence of the sort. And I think this list maybe will bring you home with this idea. Our religion was founded at the greatest revelation in human history. Right? Millions of people collectively experienced prophecy in Mount Sinai. If you watch the movie 1956, The Ten Commandments, they do a disservice to the actual text. Read Exodus. Read what it says and how it describes the Mount Sinai experience. Read the re- repetition of the Sinai experience in the book of Deuteronomy. It makes it abundantly clear that the entire nation was there. The entire nation experienced prophecy. They all were there and they heard Moshe, Le'alahar, Moses coming to the mountain. They experienced prophecy collectively. That was how this nation was formed. If God formed a nation in front of everyone, everyone saw, everyone experienced it, why would he not inform us when he changed his mind? It doesn't make sense to form a religion in, uh, in, in front of millions of people and then, you know what, we're going to replace it with something else, but we're not going to tell anyone about it. We're just going to tell one guy about it. The reliability of the of, of revelation of one person is, how can you rely on that? Right? Hence, the real question is not why we don't believe, but why we should believe, especially us as Jews. Our religion was founded in a way unlike any other. Our religion was founded in front of millions. We had a national revelation. Everyone experienced it. Everyone saw. 
collectively we were elevated to the level of prophets. That's what happened at Mount Sinai. That's where the religion started. We didn't believe Moses. Moses came to us and said, oh, God spoke to me, and now I'm going to convince you. No, that's not why they believed in Moses. They believed in Moses because they were there themselves. They saw themselves. And hence, it's, 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 a, it's impossible to falsify. You cannot convince millions of people that they saw something they didn't see, that they did not see. Christianity comes along. Islam comes along. Uh, Mormonism comes along. What, what kind of story are they selling? Paul on the way to Damascus. He meets Jesus. Oh, and he has this tremendous 180 change of heart. Right? A new religion comes out based upon that revelation. Okay, what if he's lying? Right? Who was there? It's one man. Muhammad comes along to us in the, in the 7th century. And he says, oh, I'm the prophet of God. Allah spoke to me, here's the Quran, this is what you guys got to do. One man. How do we know that you're not lying? What evidence do we have that we're going to actually live our life based upon what you're telling us? Joseph Smith in the 19th century comes along and says, the angel spoke to me, gave me the golden tablets, and here's the book, originally written reformed Egyptian, this is the Book of Mormon, this is the way you should live your lives. What if he's lying? Every religion suffers the same fate. We cannot believe it because it's a bunch of nonsense. Because if it wasn't, God should have told all of us. Judaism began in the presence of millions. Everyone experienced it. We do not believe Moses because Moses convinced us that we need to believe in him. Rather because we ourselves experienced it alongside him. If God were to change his mind and say, you know what, Jews, you guys lost it. I'm giving it to everyone else. Just imagine, like, uh, you know, think of like this really wealthy dad who has like 15 kids and says, uh, gathers them all together and says, okay, fine. This is the allocation of the funds, you know. You're getting this, you're getting that project. Everyone gets their nice, uh, uh, and then uh, he dies. And then one of the brothers says, oh, by the way, before he died, he said, it all comes to me. So, wait a minute. If he was going to change his mind, he spoke to all of us and said, you're getting this, you're getting that, and everyone's very happy with it. With, why would he not tell all of us, oh, by the way, I changed my mind, and I'm giving it just to this one guy? It doesn't make sense. If a religion or a way of life or way of thinking begins in a certain format, right, in front of a whole bunch of people, if that's going to be revoked, it would be revoked also publicly. We never have this public uh, 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 revocal Right? We just believe, if, if someone believes Christianity, they're believing the testimony of one man, especially when it's self-contradictory, it believes in the Torah, the Torah itself says it cannot be true, the Torah itself claims it cannot be uh, amended later on. It has multiple contradictions, it's trying to fulfill the, 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 the prophecies of the Bible when it fulfills none of them. Anything, any sort of evidence that it does has, has to be shoehorned in. We have abundant reason to not believe in, in, in Jesus and JC. We don't believe in Christianity, and, uh, and we don't believe he's Messiah. He certainly was not an element of God. We have abundant evidence to the contrary, and we have exactly zero evidence uh, to prove it to be true. So that's that. You haven't touched on vicarious atonement. What's that? I'm not an expert in that. Uh, that Jesus died for our sins. Oh, yeah, of course, of course, that's, I'm saying. Yeah, and the original that's, sin. That's a... a Main tenet of, uh, of course, uh, yes. Um, so what, what, why is it so popular? Why does it have? Why I, listen, does it have so many adherents? I, to, listen. I think the reason why it's very popular 
is because it's offering you a hint of real spirituality without any of the requirements. It's like being a grandfather first, you know? It's like the guy who says, hey, if I knew how much fun grandkids were, I would just have them first, <laughs> you know? It's a way to have the, uh, or an element of spirituality without all the work. All you gotta do is believe and you're in. Yeah, remember, it, like, like, we, like, like we spoke, you just believe in, in, in JC and you, and you have salvation and you're in. You're, you know, you're part of the group. If you want to, if you want to join Judaism, right? You have to do adopt the law, and it's very restrictive, and it's it's very difficult, and it's not an easy thing. That's why Christianity, like I said, Christianity explodes when the doors are open, right? Uh, In the first century, if you wanted to join Judaism, you had to circumcise, and that's something that the Romans uh, very much uh, were uh, were hesitant to do. You have to study Torah. There were lots of requirements. It's very difficult to be a good Jew. To be a good person is very easy. Right, you know, if you're a generally good person, it's not. Um, and also, remember, Christianity is not demanding knowledge, evidence. It's demanding faith. Maimonides, when he talks about believing in God, he doesn't mention faith. He mentions knowledge, because we have a much more strict or uh, uh, more difficult. Uh, demands that we place on Jews than are placed on Christians. So that's why all these, all these intellectual um, uh, contradictions and stuff are relevant to them, because as long as you have faith. Yeah, 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 and that's and that, and, that, and the faith is also going to preclude you trying to uh, tr- trying to reconcile the problems. You know, if you if you if you know if it's based upon faith, well, then how can you disprove faith? You can't. Well, Christian. well, in Christians, yeah, and a lot of a lot of Christians today that um, we know that we have many many Christians that are converting or in the process of converting to Judaism. Just over here, there's a whole group of Noahites, right? Just right around the corner, there's a temple, there's a Noahites, the native, right? And they're uh, they're um, oh, it's a it's a it's like a Noah. I don't know what exactly it is. It's a learning center, Torah learning center. But it's yeah, but it's for non-Jews, primarily Christians who ask questions. Um, if a Christian is going to take their th- their philosophy and their theology very seriously, they will eventually realize that there are tremendous holes in uh, in the uh, in the, in in their uh, uh, in their story in their system. And they're, they're discouraged. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. As opposed to in Judaism, uh, it's encouraged, right? Encouraged. Uh, intellectual curiosity, asking questions is encouraged. Remember, Christianity, uh, throughout its history, it wasn't necessarily the most intelligent people. Like, you know, the Jewish people always had 100% literacy, always. Um, while if, if you were to just be dropped into a town somewhere in Poland in the 13th century, and you would look at the Christians in the town, and you would look at the Jews in the town, uh, they would look very different. You know, the Jews were all educated, and uh, it, probably 99% of the Christians were illiterate. Um, hence, the Reformation and kind of the major upheavals that went in, uh, through the Christian world, that was, um, that was, uh, 
the, the point in time where knowledge and literacy spread throughout the world in the Enlightenment and or the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, that's when the Christians were f- faced with the you know with all these uh, problems and all these uh, all these uh, d- divergent uh, groups because the people were asking questions. But for the vast majority of the past thousand years, they didn't have that problem because they were suppressed and uh, uh, the texts weren't freely available to everyone and the people were left in the dark. It's clear, no one denies it, um, um, that uh, the Christians, the, the church did a lot to suppress uh, exposure of, of, the, of the lay people to sources in the texts and kind of the proofs. And that was discouraged and uh, they didn't have the availability. Now, once there's availability, people that do actually take it very seriously will eventually come to the same conclusions that there are major, major gaps in in, in the philosophical approach of of, of Christianity. And with but, the wider range of internet, with the Chabad and Asian, all the wonderful sites, I um, imagine that more and more people are trying to fill the gaps and see that. Yeah, I'm saying we see this today. I'm saying how, how many people in, in Houston that uh, grew up Christian or grew up with certain, certain Christian affiliations are coming to, to the synagogues. It happens everywhere. Our synagogue in South, there's many, many, many people that grew up Christian and start asking questions. Even people that were, they were there was one, there's one guy who was, him and his wife, they were pastors, you know. They were pastors. And they started, you know, they had a, uh, they just couldn't live with the uh, inconsistencies that they were preaching, and they eventually became Jewish. They converted, and now they're observant Jews. There's many, many stories of this all across the country. Why do we have 63 books of interpretation of everything that's so fixed? Well, who says it's interpretation? The, the word interpretation. How is interpretation? Uh, no, I don't believe it's interpretation. Ah. In fact, the Talmud uh, itself quotes a verse... Um, in the Torah, that delineates that the Sinai experience and the Jewish people's study of the Torah after they received the Torah, um, they re- what did they actually receive at, at Mount Sinai was just the Ten Commandments, but the Torah and the, what it means to be a Jew incorporates all of oral Torah as well. All of that was transmitted, was given from Moses. It's not interpretation. It's not interpre- well, if you look at the written document and the oral documents as being distinct, well, you say this is an interpretation of, of, uh, uh, of the oral's interpretation of the written Torah. Uh, but traditionally, even the Talmud itself says that, that this was given to Moses. Every single... No, we're not describing that, but all these things, you, you have... Now, I haven't really studied the Talmud or seen pieces and parts, but you have these rabbis, all these distinguished people arguing over one sentence or one... Well, they're arguing. What's the argument? The argument is, no, it's in tradition. It's, it, the argument is in tradition. The argument is, if one rabbi says this is true, other rabbi says that's true, what they're actually arguing about is what is the accurate tradition. Okay. So... Um, the argument is not how do we right now interpret it, but rather what did Moses say? That's really the argument. Uh, so the, the divergence is in tradition, not in interpretation. But the Torah and lots of things are particularly vague. Well, in the written Torah, for sure, yeah. by design. The, Torah, yeah. the, the written Torah entirely is very vague. And that's, another, that, that's, that's abundant, it should be abundant evidence that, that this is not the entire corpus. 
Clearly, there's more to it, right? The Torah itself, like we mentioned, we talked about this already once, uh, maybe even multiple times, that the Torah itself uh, talks about uh, other books that, uh, that, or other methods of instruction, right? Place in the ears of Joshua, uh, the verse we, we brought um, a few times ago about uh, Deuteronomy 12, about slaughtering an animal, as I instructed, right? The Torah clearly uh, uh, hints, uh, the written Torah clearly hints that there's another form of, of instruction, oral instruction, um, but uh, but I wouldn't call it interpretation. I would call it um, the uh, uh, the companion uh, to to the written Torah. We're going to be doing a class on the fifteenth. I think it's going to expand on this very topic called national revelation. Of, of uh, yeah, well, expand on a certain element of of, of our discussion, but. Uh, Bernie's question I think I want to talk about uh, um, at greater length kind of how the written Torah and the oral Torah uh, how, they, how they developed and how, uh, how what's the interplay what's the interface between the two what's the relationship between the two I think the New Testament just to follow up on one point yeah it's, it is and that might be some of the appeal right it is a lot more reader friendly the stories than, than the Torah itself where it takes a lot more work to figure out what does this mean? Judaism is a much more demanding religion, uh, probably than any other religion, for sure than any other religion. Yes, um, I, I do believe that uh, if someone's a good Christian, they have a portion of the world to come. This is a member of dramatic difference between our uh, philosophy um, with regards to other people. Like we don't believe in exclusivity of spirituality. Um, if someone is a is a good a good non Jew, he has a portion of the world to come, as opposed to let's say the the Christians say your eternal damnation, or the Muslims say Dar al Kharb, nation of Islam, nation of sword. Um, we don't believe that everyone has to be Jewish to be good. Um, you could be if someone is a good Christian, they they you know even though they're wrong, uh, but they could have a portion of the world to come. Yeah, oh, oh, the whole existence of, of this um, this other being, this evil god, like that that that's also not we don't we don't believe in one power. Exactly. If you don't accept, right, and that's a way to that's a way to freak people into or compel them into belief. Exactly. Because. Uh, I have a question. Someone that said once asked me, a Jewish person said to me, "What do you think about Jesus? Who is he?" I said to him, I said responded to a non-Jewish person that Jesus existed. He was there in the Potter's century. He taught some Jewish principles. Some people have asked me, is he a rabbi? And no, he's not a rabbi. He would not be considered no. a rabbi. No. He would not be considered a teacher. Correct? Well, a teacher so or a be, preacher of some sort, yes. So he would um, be, then he was a teacher. But Yes, but he, 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 was, he was a teacher or a preacher, but not necessarily a teacher of... Uh, uh, of, of Jewish ideals, more of like this this kind of new Judeo-Christian ideals. Because someone said to me then, if his greatest thing is you should love your neighbor as yourself, and he was preaching the Shema. Yeah, so he was himself. teaching a certain uh, a, a, a certain dogma that was very similar to Judaism, but it had its departures. That's where he went off. So that was a way to get them in. 
No, like I said, it was very, it was very appealing to the non-Jews then. That's what I mean, too. Yeah, it was very, it was very appealing. At the time of the early formation of Christianity. That's right. If Judaism is more difficult to practice than Christianity, yeah. and a good Christian may get yeah. Well, a Jew doesn't have the option. There's no opt-out clause. Um, once you're Jewish, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, Jew, the Jewish people collectively had accept, have accepted this national responsibility, um, this mission of fulfilling the Jewish destiny, uh, and we are in it for the long haul. Um, a Gentile, on the other hand, they don't have to adopt Judaism to be good. Uh, if someone's a Noahide, if someone's a good non-Jew, well, then they have a portion of the world to come, and they could, you know, they, you know, they won't necessarily have the same status as Jews, you know, because Jews are taking on the responsibility of all of humanity, as opposed to a a Noahide, someone who just says, "Hey, I'm going to be positive influence on society. I'm not going to screw up. I'm not going to murder. I'm not going. I'm going to kind of follow the law. I'll be a decent citizen, but not necessarily positively impacting the entire world." Are we? By the way, is there going to be a, a session on the world to come? What our ideas? We we have some. We we spoke about it already. Um, yes, yes. Um, I want to. Uh, I want to give some uh, um, some follow up. If anyone's interested in learning more about this, um, I give a class uh, on my website rebelwalby.com uh, about Messiah. What does Judaism? What does the Judaism actually say about Messiah? Go to the go to the website and search for Messiah. You'll find it. Mashiach. I listened to it last night. Um, in my opinion, superb content. <laughs> so uh, um, I would advise that if someone wants to know more about Mashiach and kind of. The false messiahs and what messiah needs to do, more about that. Um, additionally, about what we spoke about, kind of the role of, uh, of, of written law, Torah law. I spoke about that many, 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 many places. I'll send you a few links if you're interested. Either way, guys, I wish everyone a wonderful, uh, I guess, season's greetings. <laughs> um, we're going to be we're going to reconvene here January 11th. We have the... Um, the curriculum. Fantastic. Um, there's going to be one session that's going to be questions and answers. So that means uh, whatever you guys want to talk about, we talk about. I think it's February 1st. Either way, looking forward to seeing you all. Tons of fun. Once again, apologize for being late. Thank you. Thank you.